and welcome to Unity Presbyterian Church Online. This week in worship, Pastor David talks about the transfiguration of Jesus and asks us to look for the sacred in our own lives. Let's listen. Years ago, I got to spend a week uh, teaching in Kingston, Jamaica. Uh, it was a large group of us, and we were in a school, and the school for a week allowed us to teach about the Bible. Uh, we could teach about God's love and God's plan for all of the students in this primary school. It was called Golden Springs Primary School. And part of what we were teaching was um, Bible memorization. And each class had a different verse they were supposed to memorize. And by the end of the week, they kind of shared their memory verse with everybody else in the school. Oh, I took a video of, of these students sharing their memory verses because I, I found it so important and, and so transformational. And I want to share with you one of those videos. So this is one of the younger classes reciting their Bible memory verse. Uh, let's go ahead and see that video. So, in case you couldn't hear all the words, it was today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Lord. And they had actions to go along with the Bible memory verse. Well, standing in that room and recording that video, I could feel the presence of God. It was one of those moments, and I know you've had them in your life, where there's no doubt in your mind. You go, God is here. I can feel God's presence. God is right here, right now. There was something about all these kids from a country that was different from my own reciting scripture. And not just any scripture, but reciting scripture that a Savior has been born for you, for you, the people of Jamaica, for us, the people of America. Yes, a Savior has been born for all parts of the world. I still get goosebumps thinking about being in that classroom that day. And so I wonder, as we begin our time together this morning, when's the last time you have felt like that? When's the last time that you felt God's presence near to you? And that you can say without a doubt in your mind, oh, I feel God here with me. Perhaps it was at the birth of a child or a grandchild, as you held that child in your arms and you just felt God's love and compassion surround you in that moment. These are incredible experiences. But I fear that as Christians, we tend to think that they're few and far between. That maybe a couple times throughout your life, you'll have that moment where you just know God is with you. But I don't think it has to be like that. I believe that we can actually grow in our awareness of God. And so that as we grow more and more aware of God's presence, we'll have more and more of these types of experiences where we just know or we just feel God being with us. So to teach us kind of how to get to that point, we're going to study a passage um, from the Gospels where Jesus is meeting with three of his disciples and he's teaching them something profound about the presence of God. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 9, and here's how it begins. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, 
and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. All right, so Peter, James, and John, they acted as a bit of Jesus' inner circle. There are numerous occasions throughout the Gospels that Jesus took them aside for particular training and instruction. Well, this time, Jesus leads them up to a mountaintop to be alone, and that's where something incredible happens. Jesus is transformed. You heard how Mark described it. Mark said his whole appearance changed, where the disciples, they could tell it was Jesus, but they could also tell that something was different. Jesus looked different from any moment he'd ever looked like that before. They said his clothes, his clothes were dazzling white, whiter than they'd ever seen before, whiter than any earthly material could ever make it. This scene was so significant that three out of the four gospel accounts recite this scene. And so I went ahead and I looked at, well, what does Matthew and what does Luke have to say about this scene? And I really enjoyed reading those accounts because they got a little bit more specific. Uh, Let me give you an example. Here's what Luke says about this scene. Luke says the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Okay, so Mark was a little bit more general. Mark said his appearance changed. But here Luke's getting a bit more specific. He says, no, specifically it was his face. His face was transformed. But we still don't know how, do we? Well, how was Jesus' face transformed? And that's where Matthew helps us. Matthew gets even more specific. Matthew says, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Do you see how they're all just trying to use human language to describe what it is that they saw that day? It's an incredible scene, a stunning mountaintop type experience where Jesus' face shines like the sun, and his clothes become as white as light. But we still don't know why this happened, do we? Why did Jesus' appearance change? What was the significance of what the disciples were experiencing that day? Well, that's what we're going to explore in a second. But before we get there, there's a little bit more to unpack. As the story goes on, we could say the plot thickens a little bit. Here's what happens next. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Okay, I know what you're thinking. What? Eliza and Moses are here? They died several hundred, if not a thousand years before this scene took place. So how are Elijah and Moses beside Jesus right now on this scene? What is going on? Well, let's unpack it a little bit. So Moses and Elijah are two of the most famous and well-known figures in the whole of the Old Testament. In Judaism, Moses became known as the representative of the law, meaning the Ten Commandments, as well as the covenant that God made with God's people. And so when you thought of the law, you thought of Moses. 
And in a similar way, Elijah became the preeminent prophet of his time. When you thought of a prophet, someone who spoke for God, you often would think of Elijah. This became so true that then people in the New Testament, when they began referring to the Old Testament, they would start using a nickname for it or shorthand. They would simply call the Old Testament the law and the prophets. Jesus even does this. In Matthew 22, he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. What he's saying there is he's using the nickname for the Old Testament, saying, yeah, all the Old Testament hangs on these two commands. And so what's happening here is that Moses and Elijah are representing all of the Old Testament. It's like in this moment when Jesus is transformed, when he is shining like the sun, it's like they're saying everything in the Bible that has been leading up into this point is now being fulfilled by Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, everything that you learned about God up until this point has been leading somewhere. And it's been leading to this point on the mountaintop where Jesus is now transformed. You see, in the Old Testament, the glory of God was always depicted as shining light, as this brilliant color. And so Jesus on the mountaintop, he's not just with Moses and Elijah, but he's shining because God's glory is shining through him in that moment. That's the significance of what is happening on the mountaintop. And it's significant to his disciples too. Because up until this point, the disciples saw him as an ordinary man who could also do miracles. And they were trying to figure out how that all worked together. I mean, they saw Jesus, and when Jesus became hungry, he would eat, just like a normal person. When Jesus became tired, he would sleep. But in this moment, at the top of the mountain, Jesus is transformed to show the full power of God on display through him. It's like the veil between heaven and earth is being removed just for a second in this transforming moment on the top of the mountain. Okay, so now that you've imagined this scene in your minds, I want to show you how someone else imagines this scene. There's a painter, Peter Rubens, who painted the Transfiguration in 1605. So take a second and just look at this painting. See what attracts your eyes first. Where does your gaze go? And I want to then highlight a couple of things in this painting. I think the first thing that draws your eye is, of course, Jesus in the center. And around Jesus is this radiant light. It's actually shining down into creation. And then you've got these two figures on the left and the right. On the left, you have Moses. And we know that because he's holding the Ten Commandments, which means that on the right you have Elijah. And then right below Jesus, you've got these three disciples who have fallen down at his feet. They are witnessing what's happening, but they're covering their eyes because they know what they're witnessing is something that they have never experienced before. 
So I bet if you heard that someone was going to paint the transfiguration, you would expect that top part, wouldn't you? But what Peter Rubens does is he expands it down to this bottom part. And this bottom part is what is happening off of the mountain, below the mountain, while Jesus is being transfigured up top. You might remember a couple weeks ago where we studied a story of the nine remaining disciples. So those nine disciples were left at the bottom of the mountain, and a father, right, depicted right here, brings his son who's suffering from seizures. You remember that story? And he brings him to the disciples, and he asks the disciples to heal him, but they couldn't do it. Do you remember that? And so Peter Rubens depicts these side by side to really make the point that without Jesus— And without God's glory being displayed through Jesus, like on the top of the mountain, then the rest of creation, the rest of humanity, and these disciples, well, they're powerless without the power of Jesus. So I thought that was a really interesting way to depict what's happening here. But for us, what the transfiguration represents is it's meant to show that through Jesus, the full power of God is on display. Now, I wonder, as I read through this story, I wonder what did those disciples, what was going through their minds when they experienced this? Peter, James, and John, I mean, you saw in the picture they were falling down on their knees. But what were they thinking? Well, we're actually told a little bit of what they were thinking. So the Gospel of Mark, Well, Mark wasn't up there, right? But we believe that Mark got the majority of his information for writing the gospel from Peter. And so it's as if Peter is sharing this story and Mark is writing it down, which I think then is really fascinating because when Mark describes what the disciples felt, he describes Peter. And here's what Peter says. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, It's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then I love this is Mark's commentary. He said this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Are you the type of person who, when you become nervous, you end up talking more, even if what you say doesn't really make sense? That's Peter. I mean, Peter doesn't need to say anything in this scene, but he feels like he should say something. And so he comes up with his idea. Well, he says, well, should should I make three memorials for you guys? In other words, we can all kind of spend the night here. I can make a structure for Jesus and Elijah and Moses. He's saying this because he doesn't know what else to say. He is terrified of what's happening here. Because, again, he's used to walking with Jesus, the person, who can do miracles, but has never looked like that before. He's never changed like that before. And Peter doesn't know what to do with that. So I think he speaks for all of the disciples to say, I don't know what's going on here. Well, he never gets the chance to build any memorial or to commemorate the situation Because as he's speaking, a cloud comes and overshadows the top of the mountain. If you've hiked in the mountains before, 
particularly if you go out west, you know how quickly storms can move in, right? Where you can be hiking and then all of a sudden the clouds start taking over and then you can't see anything in front of your hand. Well, that's how I imagine this scene because we're told in Mark 9 verse 7 that then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Okay, again, use your imaginations. Put yourself in this scene. You've just seen Jesus transformed in light. You see two people who have died since return. And then you're being surrounded by this thick, overshadowing cloud. And if that's not enough, then you hear a voice. And it's the voice of God. And the voice of God speaks through the cloud and says, This is my Son, whom I love. Again, we need to go back to the Old Testament to find out what's the significance of a cloud. Why is God speaking through a cloud? And if you study the Old Testament, you'll learn that God often spoke through the clouds. Think back to when Moses first received the Ten Commandments. Where did Moses receive the commandments? He was called up to a mountaintop, right? And when he was on that mountaintop, a thick cloud overwhelmed the top of the mountain. And then God spoke to Moses through that cloud. In the Old Testament, God often spoke in this way. And just as a fun fact, can you remember what happened to Moses when he came back down the mountain? His face shone like the sun, so much that he had to put a veil on. Do you remember that story? So there's a lot of parallels between what's happening here in the New Testament and what happened in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. It's like this story is bringing to completion what began in the book of Exodus. But I want to focus for a second on God's words. This is my son whom I love. Do those words sound familiar to you? Have you heard them before? Well, if they do, it's with good reason. Because Jesus, or sorry, because God said those exact words when Jesus began his ministry. So Jesus began his ministry with his baptism. And during his baptism, at the very beginning, we were told that the heavens opened up. And a then a, a dove descended, representing the Holy Spirit, onto Jesus. And then God spoke, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We can see that in Matthew chapter 3 as he remembers that scene. So what's happening here is that God's voice now acts as bookends to Jesus' ministry. Because right at the beginning of his ministry, in his baptism, God said, this is my son, right? This is who is going to change the world. And now in this scene, this comes right near the end of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus goes down that mountain, it is a very short amount of time until he's arrested and until he dies on a cross. And so once again, God the Father is reminding the world, this is my son whom I love. Except this time he adds a caveat, listen to him. 
And then we're told suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone. And they saw only Jesus with them. All right, this is a strange story, isn't it? Which is why we're including it in our Strange Story series. But it's also one of my favorites. It's a story that's full of symbols and signs. This is a moment where that veil between heaven and earth is being removed. And the glory of God is shining into the world through Jesus Christ. It's a significant story in the scriptures. But what I wonder is what does it mean for you? What does this story mean for you today, 2,000 years later? Because you are not one of those three disciples up on the mountaintop experiencing the radiance of God in that moment. But that doesn't mean you don't get to see God today. That doesn't mean that you don't get to experience God's radiance today. I believe that there is much that is sacred in our world. Now, it may not be as blinding as it was in the story that we just uh, discovered today, but I believe it will be just as evident if you're paying attention. So the call to action for us in this story truly is to begin to pay attention to God in our world. Where do you notice the sacred in your life? I think that's a good starting point for us. Where do you notice the sacred? Or, if we're being honest with ourselves, do you often just feel lost and trivial of your life? Or are the non-essentials taking up the majority of your time? The ancient Celtic tradition has a term uh, thin places. I've mentioned it before, so you may remember it, but thin places, they refer to the places where heaven and earth seem to touch. It's this idea that, well, okay, we often think of heaven and earth as, as extremely separate things. It's like, well, I'm on earth right now, but someday when I die, I'll be somewhere else in heaven. But the Celtics said, well, kind of. But there are moments where you go through life and you can feel God. Where you go through life and you have that sort of experience where you go, God is present right here. And those moments, they said, those are thin places where that barrier between heaven and earth seems to be very thin. Those are the moments that we can really recognize the sacred right here in our world. Maybe for you, that's a moment where you're out in nature, and all of a sudden the breathtaking beauty of God just captures you, and it feels like a thin place. You go, oh God, God is here. But what I want to encourage you to understand is it doesn't have to be just those sorts of once-in-a-lifetime experiences. Every day can be an experience of God present with you if you search for those if you're attentive to those, if you have eyes to see. Again, they're not going to be like a mountaintop every time because we don't live on the mountaintop. It would be nice if we did, wouldn't it? It would be nice if we just every day had mountaintop experiences where you go, whoa, God is, is present in my life in a way that I cannot deny. But that's not the case because we live 
at the bottom of the mountain, don't we? But in our day-to-day life, you can still pursue those thin places, those places where you just know God is here. But what I think we need to do is we need to get our minds focused in that direction. Too often our minds are wandering or focused on other, the more trivial, non-essential parts of our lives. But what would it look like if we geared our attention more to the presence of God? The presence of God that is here in our world and in our lives. It's seeking more of those places where you experience God's presence. And that's going to be different for each and every one of us. I believe we all experience God's presence a little bit differently. So it's about you pursuing what that looks like in your life. It's those places where the holy and the human meet. It's those places where the the beauty of our world, as well as the brokenness of our world, collide. We can experience God on the mountaintop, but we can also experience God when you're standing over your kitchen sink. If you have eyes to see. Amen. If you would like more information about Unity Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at www.unitypres.org or visit us on Facebook. This is the Unity Presbyterian Church Podcast. Have a great week.